Irish immigrants finding home. Land worked for generations. Children playing in fields, measuring their growth against the corn stalks. Late summer rains bring puddles for splashing and growth to the crops. Early fall morning brings fields of green and gold. The time for harvest is here. May we who gather here this morning celebrate this harvest time together. And may the light of our chalice help us grow in knowledge and may our community nourish our souls. Sunwise, we cast the circle, the wheel of heavens, we pattern upon the earth, we call to the four directions. The air is clear and pure. Hawk of the dawn, bless us with the powers of the east. Element air, hail and welcome. Hail and welcome. I look to the south. The sun is high over sunk fields. Its fire is hot and vital. White stag of the chase, bless us with the powers of the south. Element fire, hail and welcome. Hail and welcome. I look to the west. Sunset shrouded by autumn's mist. The pool is stilled and fathomless. Salmon of wisdom, bless us with the powers of West. Element water, hail and welcome. Hail and welcome. I look to the north. Stars shine clear in the midwinter night. The cave is dark and silent. Great bear of the winter kingdom, bless us with the powers of the north. Elemental earth, hail and welcome. Hey, and welcome. Lunasa is one of the eight high holidays of the wheel of the year, like Carl was saying at the very beginning of service. It's followed by most pagans, but like you use, there is all sorts of variation on the theme. <laughs> so people who practice earth-centered spirituality mostly honor these holidays. If you visualize the year as a wheel, there are points that mark transitions on it. Two of the points are solstices, the longest day of the year, which occurred in June, and the shortest day in December. The other two points are equinoxes, where we get our word equal from. They're sometimes referred to as quarters, these four points, since that's how they divide up the year. In between those four points are cross quarters, days that mark the midway point between a solstice and the next equinox. Lunasa is one of those points. We are halfway between the summer solstice and the autumnal equinox. And if your perception of temporal time has been a little weird during the pandemic, that might come as a bit of a surprise. <laughs> this is the first harvest it's the feast of first fruits. We are truly beginning to experience the fruitfulness of our spring planting and our summer tending. I see Lunasa in the sunlight. It's so subtle, but the later part of the day begins to take on more of a golden glow as we head into late summer. 
I see Lunasa as I drive through the county. The corn is high and some of the fields are already cleared. The heat has been baking the land and there's golden brown now, as well as the green that we saw in midsummer. I see Lunasa at the farmer's market. I look forward to the sweet corn every year and it's here now. The lettuces and tender greens from spring are less common, but there's delicious zucchini, green beans of every color imaginable, beautiful berries, and the first of the melons. I see Lunasa in the garden. The sunflowers are starting to open. The crepe myrtle is blooming and the asters are starting to show their color. The echinacea is so tall and the bees love it. The daylilies are like a patch of bright sunlight. I see Lunasa all around me, in the fields and foods, the trees and flowers. I see it in the bumblebees and the butterflies. I see it in the golden sunlight. I see the fullness of harvest and also the shadow of autumn to come. I see Lunasa everywhere. I feel Lunasa in my heart. The warmth of late summer echoes the warmth in my spirit when I visit my friends. I feel it in the laughter of the children as they play in the swimming pool. I feel it in the summer concerts and cookouts. I feel Lunasa in the abundance of connections around me. Winter was so hard and lonely. This first harvest overflows with love and friendship. I feel Lunasa in my body, in the way I wear lighter clothing and drink more water. I feel Lunasa when the sun is strong and even a little time outside makes me sweat. I feel Lunasa in the warm summer nights when it is the best time to take a walk after the sun starts to set. I feel Lunasa in my schedule, in the way we're making the most of these warm summer days. I feel it as the first autumn events appear in the distance. I feel the sweet savoring of that which is temporary. I know the cool weather will come again and the sooner and sooner than I realize, I feel how precious this time is to me. I live Lunasa with the feast of first fruits. I load up my kitchen with fresh fruits and vegetables and serve them to my friends and family. I always get a fresh loaf of bread from the bakery and serve it with some of last year's berry preserves. I live Lunasa by going to the county fairs that are happening nearby. It's fun to see the different crafts and I love checking out all the animals. The little lambs and calves that the 4-H kids adopted in the spring are getting big and it's amazing to see how far they've come. Plus fair food, of course. Anywhere that there are funnel cakes seems to be a great place to be. <laughs> I live Lunasa by playing games. Historically, it was archery and sports, but with temperatures in our region so high, it's a great time to play games inside too. I like to have board game nights with my friends and family. In the time of our ancestors, food came and went with the hunt and the harvest without the sureties of our surplus that the modern age provides. The dark nights of winter gave way to a hungry spring as the stored food ran low. In spring, the fields were green still, 
In spring, the deer were mating, and to hunt them would sabotage the year's food to come. In our wheel of the year, Lunasa is a festival of first fruits, a joyous celebration that fresh food is available again. We're going to lead a guided meditation, and in this meditation, we are going to reference a sickle. Jack is holding one up in case you haven't seen one before, or if it's been a very long time, and now we're going to put it down. You're perfectly safe, I promise. <laughs> so friends, I invite you to close your eyes or bring them to a half gaze, whatever's comfortable for you, and still yourselves. Join me in the harvest. It is hot. The air is hot. The sun is hot. Below your bare feet, the soil is hot, warmed by the sun. You press into it with your toes until you feel the cool, damp soil below the surface. You are in a field. This field has been worked by a thousand generations come before us. Ancestors in the footsteps of ancestors. We carry their legacy, and like them, we plant seeds for future generations to harvest. But this is not the season for planting. In your hand is a sickle. It is heavy, but the weight is reassuring. In the cool, dark soil, Wheat seeds are germinating. Before your eyes, at time-lapse speeds, green sprouts push their way out of the dark of the earth. Long, grassy leaves bursting from the ground. A miracle. It is not yet time. I wait. The wheat shoots up, seeking the sun, the source of all life on this planet the sun so hot on your back, you raise the sickle. It is not yet time, I wait. The grain grows heavy on the wheat, the sickle grows heavy in your hand. Sweat runs down your face, you are hungry, and once you harvest you may eat. It is not yet time, I wait. The field is full of wheat, golden now, as high as your shoulder. Before you, the clump you have been watching is beautiful and golden and bowed with the weight of the grain. You bundle the stalks in one hand and position the sickle. You wait. You think about timing. A stone arching from a sling at its highest point as it starts to fall. It flies toward a giant whose terrible eye is vulnerable only in the moment before it kills you. To play the right note is not enough. It must be played at the right time. The fruit on the tree is ripest as it starts to rot. Soon it will be too late. In the moment of ripeness, I strike. Please open your eyes. What are you harvesting right now? What parts of Lunasa do you feel in your life? Remember the lesson here as the first fruits arrive. Harvest at the moment of ripeness, whatever your endeavor. Long, long ago, and there was a king in Tara. And this king was Lulamfata, the shining god of skill. 
This was long ago, mind, before even Avergan, son of Mill, first of the mortal men walked the green hills of Ireland. And there was a great war between the god people and their cousins, the unbalanced Fothra. And in victory, Lu won from them the secrets of the harvest, secrets the Fothra never had the wisdom or temperament to use successfully. And with this new task before them, Telchio, foster mother of Lu, undertook a great working. In a single day, Teltiu cleared the fields of Ireland for agriculture. She spent her life and her magic in this working, and when it was over, she fell dead, exhausted. In her honor, Lou held great funeral games, and he announced that this festival would be he announced that this festival would be held every year to honor her sacrifice and the miracle of the harvest. This, so goes the tale, was the first Lunasa. This tale comes to us from medieval Irish literature, how accurately it reflects the pagan past and what they believed back when they worshiped it is a matter of some debate. Historically, Lunasa is a festival of first fruits and presumably the festival of the god Lugus, whose name became Lu in Irish. This is the time of first harvest. Fires were lit, offerings made on high places, and games held in celebration. This is also the time of Lamas, the loaf, the loaf mass. Similarly, a celebration of first harvests, the Anglo-Saxon Christians adopting their earlier pagan rites brought the loaf baked from the first wheat, the loaf baked from the first wheat of the fields into the church to be blessed. In Wicca, this ancient celebration was adapted using the writings of James Fraser and others into the festival honoring the sacrifice of the harvest god that brings us bread. And today, neo-pagans in general celebrate some form of Lunasa or Lamas or um, there's probably another name somewhere. Uh, <laughs> those are the two I know. Uh, and today, we honor the moment of harvest and give thanks. I stand in the west. Within the mists of the shore, I thank the salmon of wisdom and the element water. Go in peace and farewell. I stand in the south, under the eye of the sun. I thank the white stag and the element fire. Go in peace. Farewell. I stand in the east among birds' song and blossom. I thank the hawk of the dawn and the element air. Go in peace. Farewell. The light of our chalice has helped us grow in our time together. And as it is extinguished, may we take with us what is ready for the first harvest. And let us tend to the crops not yet ripe. We thank those who came before. We thank the high powers. We thank the spirits of the land in the name of the land of the sky of the sea. The circle is unmade and the land is restored. To all who joined in our right, we offer thanks and farewell. All right, we're running early, so we get to improvise. I always like to have uh, fun. So I want to tell you just a little bit about the 
um, pagan tradition, uh, two things in particular, and then uh, Irene, one thing you might do if this feels all right to you is maybe tell a little bit of your story of kind of growing up and then how you kind of became pagan. But I'll, talk, I'll do one thing first, but just to give you a second, I think that, that might be interesting for some folks to hear. Uh, one thing that uh, a lot of my world religion students at FCC really find interesting is that, you know, I don't know, did anybody grow up with negative connotations with the word pagan? Like pagan meant bad? I grew up Southern Baptist in South Carolina. Pagan meant bad as a Southern Baptist in South Carolina, uh, let's just say. Um, and, but if you look back, the roots of the word pagan, it comes from the word Paganus, and it just meant peasant. It just meant, you know, that, that's who. So, like, if you, and, and it's also an anachronism, like, what we mean by pagan now is not what meant. So, like, if you went back and in a time machine and told Julius Caesar that he was a pagan, he would be like, what are you talking about? I'm not a peasant. <laughs> like, what? And in the same way, um, uh, the word heathen, which is a related word, right? It just meant someone that was of the heath. And so Christianity, I don't think this is always obvious, but Christianity was primarily an urban phenomenon. That's mostly what was happening. People that were converting to Christianity was an urban phenomenon. So what pagans were, were the people that were like still out in the heath. They were like still out in the country doing their pre-Roman gods and goddesses, like doing their rituals. And it was quite diverse back then too, like that paganism didn't mean just one thing. So that, that's one thing that I think is helpful to know about paganism. A second, um, how many of you recognize the name Margot Adler? So if you grew up listening to NPR, you may know, which is fine if you didn't, but you may know Margot Adler along like Latch Me Sing and other, <laughs> these other names that we grew, some of us grew up hearing on NPR. Mar Margot Adler is a um, so she's, she's a lot of things, um, in addition to deceased, she is no longer with us, uh, but I uh, love the tremendous legacy, I know, uh, sorry if that's, I don't know. I'm improvising people, <laughs> not writing, it's not a script, uh, it's just unfiltered, unfiltered reflections on paganism. Uh, Margot Adler uh, was the only granddaughter of Felix Adler. Some of you will know that name. A really famous, really influential psychologist. If you look up Felix Adler later on Wikipedia, you'd be like, oh, like this, 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 and this. Like, like the, in the top 20 things you know about psychology, like Felix Adler came up with at least like five of them. <laughs> like it's like a really big deal. And so she grew up in this really secular household. And then as she began to learn some about paganism, it, she said it felt like the other, she discovered the other half of her soul. It's not like she didn't still care about psychology, but she discovered, you know, you can be up late at night dancing around a bonfire and chanting and having this. One thing, I, and you got a taste of this this morning, but I think if you ever came to some of our uh, other pagan events, like they're here in the sanctuary, remove all the chairs and all that, you'll see paganism can be very ecstatic. I think very participatory in a way that allows people to you know, really feel connected. And that, that was just really powerful for Margot Adler, you know, feeling like I, she, you know, she still deeply respected secular humanism and the struggle for social justice and this world, you know, transforming this world. But she really, and so she wrote a famous book called Drawing Down the Moon. And she wrote it at a time, like right now, and I don't know, those of you who are pagans, you can tell me if you disagree. I feel like it's easier than ever to be out of the broom closet, as it were, um, like, 
back in the 90s, if we roll this back, when Margot Adler, you know, like the thing, it's like every, what people knew about paganism was like Geraldo, where it'd be like, you know, I married a witch, or like, you know, it was like these ridiculous stories. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like everything about paganism was like this ridiculous stereotype, or and you had it was really hard to find. And so a lot of that's changed. But Margot Adler, also a Unitarian Universalist. So uh, if you don't know much about her life, she, she's worth learning more about. Irene, do you want to riff further on any of that or just share a little bit about your story and, and then we can open it up further and see where it goes. That sounds great. So one of the great things about Unitarian Universalism is that it's a natural fit for us pagans. You may have already noticed by our jokes about the many different names for holidays that we are pluralists by nature. We're polytheistic. Some of us are not theistic at all. Some of us have lots and lots of things we follow. Some of us just really like to hug trees and that's kind of where my own faith came from. So I grew up here in Frederick, which means that when I came to my mother at 10 or 9 or 8 and said, I'm bored, the solution was Cunningham Falls <laughs> or another hike in this area. And I was lucky because I was raised by parents who are artistic, who are musicians. Many of you remember my father of blessed memory, John Grassdorf, playing the guitar up here. So I like to joke that I was raised by wolves, but the truth is I was raised by hippies, and it's marvelous. It's a good way to grow up. But it meant that when I first began encountering that feeling of oneness with something bigger than me, it was because I was standing at a waterfall or because I was listening to the wind move through the trees. And my parents were wonderful in that they didn't crush my imagination because you see, so many of us get the fantasy stamped out of us where that cannot possibly be a fairy. I have very low blood pressure, which means sometimes when I stand up, I see stars. And I told my mother about it at one point and she explained scientifically what was happening to me and I said, I thought they were fairies. And the magic of my mother is that she said, maybe they are. And this is the beauty of paganism. We are both and. We love science. Most of us are pretty big nerds on that front. Science tells us how, but our spirituality tells us why. And it connects us to each other and to this one beautiful earth. So I don't think they were terribly surprised when I came home with a tarot deck at age 12 and then tortured my Sunday school teachers about it by trying to both and my way into that particular framework, which in Presbyterianism at my time was not wholly welcome. <laughs> so we gave up. <laughs> and I lived in a mixed place for a long time. I still love much about the Christian faith. That's why I'm a Unitarian Universalist now. When I was about 15, a friend of mine gave me my first pagan book. Anyone who knows this path will know this feeling. I started reading the words and realized there were other people like me. I walked into this building for the first time about 12 years ago, and I had the same realization. There are other people like me. And that resonance shaped everything, because the next thing I read was Drawing Down the Moon by Margot Adler, and then I wanted to go find all of the pagans. But as Carl said, it was difficult. I remember in the 1990s, I bought a book on pagan parenting with no, no intentions of having children because it had the word pagan in the title. That's where it was for a long time. It was exciting just to see ourselves mentioned, to see ourselves reflected. Now, it's amazing. If you come out to a Frederick Cups activity here, you will see 50 to 150 people. It depends on the holiday. The same way uh, the Christian tradition has Christmas and Easter Christians, we have Samhain and Beltane pagans. There's nothing at all wrong with that. Those are the really fun holidays. <laughs>
my paganism helps me get through. For me, the pandemic was a crushing descent into depression, and the way I found to manage that was to dive deeper into my connection with the earth. I spent a lot of time in my garden. I spent a lot of time talking to the trees I love. And for me, it was the thread I held in the darkness. And it brought me here, back to all of you and this beloved community. And thank you so much for going on a pagan adventure with all of us today. It's not bad for improvised. Um, so I'll tell you a few more fun facts about uh, paganism, and then if there's another one of our, our folks, if, if you don't have to, but if any of you want to sort of do what, what Irene just did, uh, share just a little piece of your story. All right, we'll let Chris go next. Uh, so I, I appreciate what Irene just mentioned. It's what is sometimes called the difference between first-hand religion and second-hand religion. This comes from a guy named William James. He was at Harvard, wrote a number of famous books, most famously uh, um, called The Varieties of Religious Experience. He wrote this around 1900 and had a brother named Henry James. Some of you all know, uh, kind of English majors. And one of the things William James really emphasized is the difference between secondhand religion, and secondhand religion is what other people tell you is true from, from a place like this, wearing things like this, or pointy hats, or whatever. Uh, and that all, sometimes that can be really, really helpful. Um, you know, sometimes there are people who are experts and know various things, but there's a difference with first-hand religion. It's what, it's what our, if you look on, you, I talked about our sixth source, our first source on the back of your order of services you use is direct experience. It's what you know is true because you have directly experienced it for yourself, kind of existentially, and that, that can make all the difference in the world. No, it's good, testify. I'm, I'm all about it. No, it's paganism, participatory, it's welcome. Uh, so that, that's something that I think is, is quite remarkable about, you know, paganism. Paganism isn't about, like, believing a bunch of things. It's often more about doing. And that, that's, again, another um, paradigm shift in the history of religions, that ancient religions were much more about doing things, about rituals, than they were about, believe, you know, 20 impossible things to believe before breakfast. Like, it, you know, like that, that wasn't what paganism was about. It was about performing the ritual correctly or powerfully or in a way that transformed you and others. Uh, a final thing I'll say, and then we'll call up uh, Chris, is you mentioned uh, Christmas and Easter, and I think that's a really interesting intersection. There definitely are what are called Christers, Christians that just come on Christmas and Easter. Uh, and, but there's also that really interesting intersection that, you know, Christmas, so I was a, you know, a Christian minister for 10 years before I became a UU minister, and I still deeply love uh, many aspects of the Christian tradition. Uh, but I think kind of historically it's interesting to note that Christmas, of course, is not actually when Jesus is born. I hope I'm not really rocky, right? We have no idea, right? You know, so Jesus was born sometime probably between the years, what we would say today, 4 and 6 BCE right, sometime in there. We know like sometime in that two-year range. I could tell you why if you wanted to later, but uh, we have no idea what season or any of that, and he actually, he died somewhere between 27 and 30. Like, we don't, you know, again, kind of an age range. So Christmas, the reason we celebrate it then is because of Yule. So we sort of baptized, as it were, Christians kind of took over that, that winter solstice celebration and said, we're going to Christianize it. In the same way, Easter, it's not even a Christian word, 
Easter is Estra. It's a, it's a spring fertility goddess, right? So if you, if you really get hardcore Christians who sort of really know what they're doing historically and theologically, like the Eastern Orthodox, like they really know what's up, uh, they call it Pascha, after the Paschal Lamb, like because they know they, they didn't want to call it Easter because they know Easter's pagan uh, and they don't want to be that. There's anything wrong with that. Chris, you want to give us a little bit of your story? So this is not prepared at all, but, and if I can speak half as well as the two people I'm sharing the stage with, that'll be, that'll be amazing. Um, what I can tell you is I grew up in West Virginia on a farm, completely immersed in redneck culture. So my trip to paganism, paganism is a little bit different. I'm technically heathen, so I follow the Norse pantheon, the Scandinavian Icelandic gods. Um, when I was growing up, we would butcher our own animals on the farm. And when I did that, I was working with people that were in their 80s and 90s that had been doing this their whole life. And there was a reverence. When the rifle cracked and the animal fell, there was respect. That animal was going to feed us through the winter. That meant a lot. And that held over from people. I was working with people that made it through the Depression. They were so thankful for the life of that animal, they couldn't even contain themselves. So all of that was handled with care. We used everything. If you want to know where pork rinds come from, I know. You don't want them. <laughs> but <laughs> you really don't. But I, care, I would carry that feeling with me on a Saturday butchering into my very Pentecostal West Virginia church. And I can tell you one thing. If you were raised Pentecostal in West Virginia, paganism's pretty normal. <laughs> but I would go into church, and they would talk about the planet and the animals around us like they were to be used. They were a resource. And I knew that was wrong because that is not what I felt the day before when we were killing animals to eat. So I got older, I read all the books, had the same experiences as anyone else. I would buy a book if it said anything about paganism because it just kind of felt this reverence for the land felt right. So I found my way into heathenry and this is where I'll tie in that redneck part. For me, heathenry teaches me to be resourceful, to be reliant on myself and my community. And those are all very much redneck qualities if you strip all of the other garbage out of it and there's plenty of garbage so I feel comfortable as heathen it calls to me uh, my cohorts jokingly refer to me as the Viking but I will tell you that my my religion has very little to do with Viking culture but it has a lot to do with the culture that came before the Vikings and that was respect for the land agriculture if anyone's familiar with Iceland there's not much ground there you can't grow much there so if they were able to get a decent harvest that was a blessing and we all just got to make sure that when we go to our grocery store that that blessing's not lost because everything's prepackaged and handed to us. So, that's it. That's great. Yeah, that's great. That's great. No, what you just said actually reminds me of a final piece I'll mention, which is you mentioned like there's some not great parts about heathenry and others that want to let go of in the same way that I would say about the Christian tradition. There's so much I love about the Christian tradition, and there's parts that are really obsolete, really misogynist or heterosexist or whatever. There's the same thing about some people. There's a real toxic mix of like heathenry and white supremacy, for example, which is one reason whenever we have like a pagan event, especially like a heathen event here, we smack a big gay pride flag, right? Right there on the on the advertisement, you know, right? Because we want to be really clear: this is an open, progressive, pluralistic, you know, paganism that is that is welcoming, and so.